speaker um, today as a, um, a part of um, Geary's um, plan to widen the, um, the scope of topics presented at um, our Tuesday seminars. I'm delighted to welcome today's speaker, Melissa Strompolis, who um, um, is based at both UNC Charlotte and uh, more recently is a research associate at the Center for Child and Family Studies at USC in uh, Columbia, South Carolina. Um, the topic that Melissa is going to present today is on gun violence in America, um, how a comprehensive solution starts with policies. So Melissa. And 
I'm not sure how all the colors are coming up, but all of these various shades of orange here are all different shades of handguns. So when we talk about gun violence and policies, it'd be particularly important for manufacturing and also the types of firearms to be representative <coughs> in those policies, particularly since we're seeing a, a spike in manufacturing and since we see links to specific types of firearms being used in certain types of crimes or in certain types of shootings. And what I'll ask you to pay attention to is whether or not these characteristics actually come up in some of the policies that we address later. So when we looked at manufacturing, we see sort of the spike that's right there. So one might wonder then if gun ownership is following this trend in manufacturing. And as we can see from this graph, when we look at multiple sources, the trends that we see in manufacturing aren't followed or aren't the same as the trends in ownership. Starting with the 1960s, what we see is a general trend towards less people in the United States actually owning firearms. So for the past several decades, this has been on the decrease. So it's sort of strange that it doesn't follow that trend in manufacturing. And one sort of might wonder if the trend in ownership is going down, why do we see that spike in manufacturing? So let's look at the first part of the question. So why is ownership decreasing? There's several different reasons, a couple of which I'll go over with you. So the first one that's up there is the declining demographic of older white men. So this demographic is on the, on the decline compared to other demographics in the United States. And particularly for older white men, they grew up in a generation where hunting was really popular, people had guns and shot them as sort of a sporting event. But in today's society, for kids who are growing up, they're more likely to take up a sport, maybe like basketball or football, than they are to pick up a gun for just a shooting as a, an activity or hunting as well. So another reason that gun ownership is on the decline is the increase of single women as heads of households. So in the United States, more and more families are being run by single women, and single women are less likely to have a gun in the home than they are if they're married to someone, because men are more likely to have guns in the home. So taking all these reasons together, what we see is basically gun ownership is on the decline because there's a declining consumer base. Consumer base. There's not a big demand or culture for guns. But, as we saw before, there is that spike in manufacturing. So a good question to ask might be, okay, if gun ownership is on the decline, then who's buying guns? So there was some demographic information on people who are the most likely to buy guns. You see them from older adults, males. We also see regional variations. So people in the South are more likely to own guns. But this information doesn't exactly provide us with everything that we need to know on why we're seeing that spike in manufacturing. So if we know who's buying guns, and we know that gun ownership overall is going down, but we have a spike in manufacturing, someone has to be buying those guns, right? So why is it then that we're seeing people who already own guns buying more? Because if ownership is going down, it's likely that these people are the ones that not only own guns, but are the ones that are continuing to purchase them as well. So there's a couple different reasons that we might see why purchasing guns is on the rise if ownership overall is on the decline. So one potential reason is that it could be like technology. Maybe it's like our cell phones. So when the new iPhone comes out, you know, we all have to run out and get it. When a new gun accessory comes out, maybe we have to go out and get that gun or get that accessory. But we just said that ownership is sort of on the decline. So it might not be likely that our trends in ownership are actually following trends in technological changes. So that might not be the best explanation. It could just be that people have a genuine interest in guns. Maybe once you, maybe it's like getting tattoos. Once you get one, you want to get a bunch more. So it could be people that buy a gun, get really interested, and they want to own all different types of guns. But again, we also talked about how we have that declining consumer base. So it might not be that people just have a genuine interest in guns. Another reason people talk about why they purchase guns is based out of fear. So it could be that people have a fear of crime. They are afraid of being attacked in their homes, they're afraid of being attacked on the streets, so they want to purchase guns for protection. But again, when we look at some of the data that's available on crime in the United States, we see that crime across the board in general is actually on the decrease. 
So for people who have a fear of crime, that might not be the best reason of why, as to why they're purchasing guns, because crime is actually going down. Other people have thought that losing the Second Amendment right could be a reason that people are purchasing firearms. So we'll talk about the Second Amendment a little more in detail later on, but for now, basically the Second Amendment in the U.S. Constitution gives everyone the right to own firearms. So if people talk about losing that right, that might cause people to go out and buy more firearms. Does anyone here know of or know what Twinkies are? Ever heard of them? A couple of nods. Well, Twinkies are these little cakes. They're filled with this cream, and they are absolutely terrible for you. You could, you could buy Twinkies, and you could eat it probably 10 years later because there's so many preservatives in there. The problem is that they taste great. So a couple of months ago, the company that makes them, Hostess, filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. So they weren't going to be making them anymore. So what do you think happened to all those Twinkies? People started stockpiling them, right? They were going to the store and scooping them all up. So perhaps if talk of restrictions or losing someone's Second Amendment right that are leading people who already own guns to go and purchase more. And what we've seen is that many people have said or talked about in the media that this is the reason why we're seeing the spike in manufacturing and why persons who already own guns are going to buy more. Because it's this talk of restrictions that leads people to want to go and buy them while they can. And so this picture here is from a gun store in Wyoming, and it typically holds about 25 different assault weapons on that wall. And as you can see, there's only a few left up there. And oftentimes, it's talk of restrictions that come from tragedies, like I described earlier in Sandy Hook, these mass shooting tragedies that often lead to discussions on whether or not <coughs> guns should be restricted to address gun violence. So let's look a little bit more closely at gun violence in America. So in the United States, on an annual basis, what we see is about 30,000 gun deaths per year and about 80,000 injuries per year. And what I'd like to do is specifically point out some comparison data to other countries based on children and young adults. Because oftentimes the most work comes from when children are affected. You see a different reaction when we talk about 20 children being murdered. So if we look at comparisons to other countries, so let's look at first with um, firearm-related homicides. The United States rate of firearm-related homicide is 15 times higher than 25 other industrialized nations combined. We look at firearm-related suicides, we see the same sort of trends. The United States is 11 times higher in firearm-related suicides compared to 25 other nations, again, combined. Now, some people like to argue that it doesn't, this doesn't matter. Because if you take away guns, this is still going to happen. But what we've seen are some researchers do some analyses on other <clears throat> non-firearm-related homicides and suicides. And what we see is that those rates in the United States are comparable to other countries. So if we talk about suicide by other means, other than firearms, the United States is the same as other countries. There's something going on where we're seeing these much higher rates of homicides and suicides from owning firearms. And so one might wonder if it's the amount of firearms that we have in the United States that is contributing to these much higher rates compared to other countries. So let's look at other countries. So what we see on this slide are the number of guns that are owned in different countries per 100 people. And as you can see, the United States clearly stands out above the rest. So in the United States, there's about 89 guns that are owned for about every 100 people. Um, second over here is Yemen, followed by Switzerland. And you can see that the Republic of Ireland much lower compared to the other countries up there as well. And it makes sense too because Ireland has a much lower rate of firearm-related homicide as well. So if we look at the U.S., there's about 276 million people in the United States. We have about 89 guns per 100 people, and that equates again to about 10 to 11,000 firearm-related homicides. If we look at all of Europe, which has you know, roughly 100 million more people than the United States, the average European company has about 17 to 18 firearms per 100 people, and about only 1,200 firearm-related deaths a year. Compared to the United States, let's say, to Japan, Japan has about 100 million less people than the United States, 
But they have less than one gun per 100 people, and they have 22 <coughs> firearm-related deaths every year. So clearly, there might be a connection then between the number of firearms that are owned in the United States to the number of firearm-related deaths and suicides. So it's based on what people acknowledge they have guns. Correct. So there are, this data is definitely not perfect. So the data from the small arms survey is a self-report data. And there are some inconsistencies. So for example, Honduras has one of the lower rates of self-reported firearm ownership, but they also have one of the highest rates of um, firearm-related violence. So this is self-report data, so there definitely are some inconsistencies in there. But if, if, if the guns are held illegally, my guess is you're not going to admit it, even to some social science researcher who comes along. Sure, absolutely. So you'd have people who are afraid of talking about their ownership, even if they own them legally, and you would definitely have people that <coughs> wouldn't want to admit it, especially if they own them illegally. So there are some definite inconsistencies in the data, but overall, we can see that the U.S. in particular may have an issue when it comes to the number of guns in the United States. So we can look at that a little bit more closely within the United States. So the graph that you're seeing here are um, all of the different states. On the bottom here, I'm not sure if you can read it in the back, but this is gun ownership. This is the percent of households that own guns. And over here on this side is the number of gun-related deaths. And what you can see is that there's a pretty clear relationship between the states that have <coughs> higher gun ownership also having higher rates of gun deaths. And so it's pretty interesting when we talk about violence and also the number of firearms that are, that are in the United States because we do see this sort of clear relationship. And again, when we talk about firearm-related violence and talk of restrictions and what to do about violence, again, this often stems from a particular type of gun-related death or violence being mass shooting or spree tragedies. And so when we looked before at the rates of manufacturing, one might then expect to see an increase in mass shootings more recently because we've seen that spike in manufacturing. Again, if there's a relationship between the number of guns and the number of firearm-related deaths. So we can look at that as well. So on this graph here, what you're seeing are some data from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, also pediatrics. And it's looking at the number of mass shootings or spree killings. What you can take away from this graph is starting with 1982 is that there seems to be sort of an upward trend or an upward tick in the number of mass shooting tragedies that have happened over the past couple decades. But, um, sorry, what was your name? Kevin. Kevin. As Kevin pointed out, there's often inconsistencies in data depending upon how it was collected. So there is another way that we can look at mass shooting tragedies. One person that looked at mass shooting tragedies a little bit differently was a guy by the name of Jonathan Fox at Northwestern University. And what he did is he looked at all types of mass shootings. So he used the standard Federal Bureau of Investigation, or FBI, definition, which says that any time that you have four or more people who are the victims of gun-related violence, that counts as a mass shooting. Whereas this graph here is looking specifically at spree killing or mass shootings similar in style to Sandy Hook, or the one that I discussed at the beginning of this presentation. So this here has a much more restrictive definition. Here, when we look at all different types of mass shootings, what you're seeing, if you can, not sure if you can see this blue line down here, there's basically been no increase or decrease in terms of mass shootings since the 1980s. So you're seeing this difference depending upon your definition of mass shooting. But when we put this information in context with other things that we know are going on, it can still be particularly important. So we know that crime overall in the United States and violence overall in the United States is going down. It's still concerning that these rates of mass shootings are staying the same, especially when everything else is decreasing. So we clearly need to pay attention to the effects of gun violence. So the list that's up here on the effects of gun violence is not all-encompassing. There are a million ways in which gun violence can affect everyone from an individual level all the way up to the societal level. But we'll just talk about a couple different ones up here. So we talked about firearm-related um, deaths in the United States. There's about 30,000 a year. 
So in terms of short lifespan, we have about 30,000 people a year that die prematurely. We also have huge costs in terms of medical care for treating victims of gun violence. Some people can require long-term care their entire life. We also have increased costs on our judicial system. So we have the cost of not only enforcing our um, gun policies that we do have in our communities, sometimes we feel that we need more police officers and we have to pay for that. It's also very expensive to prosecute people who commit acts of gun violence, and it's also very expensive to incarcerate persons who are convicted of aspects of gun violence. But it's not just these tangible effects that we have from gun violence either, it's also intangible effects. So for example, in the workplace. In the United States, for workplaces that allow guns on their premises, people there actually had a decreased sense of safety compared to other places that do allow firearms on premises. In terms of working as well, there's also a ton of money that's lost from firearm-related violence. And at a different level, communities are also negatively affected by gun violence. Gun violence is oftentimes associated with gang activity, with crime, with drugs. So it's not just an individual person that's <coughs> impacted, it could also be your entire neighborhood. So clearly, given that we have a very high rate of gun violence in the United States, that can have disastrous effects from the individual all the way up to the society, it's going to be really important for us to know then what's causing all of this violence. So let's talk about the causes. So what do you think about the causes that we have in America? Social inequality could be a cause. So what do you think specifically about the causes up here? <laughs> You're laughing because I don't know it's blank. Maybe <laughs> 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 I do know it's blank, so that's not on purpose. <laughs> so in the United States, in 1993, what happened is there was a federal study that came out. And this study basically, to very simplify, said that rather than protect, guns are actually associated with an increased risk for homicide. So by having a gun in your home for protection, you are actually at an increased risk of an event or injury than if you didn't have a gun in your home at all. And so what happened from that information is that the gun industry didn't really take that very well. And so they successfully lobbied our Congress and legislation to effectively end gun violence research. So for the past um, several decades, there hasn't been research at the federal level to address the causes of gun violence. So although this is definitely a, a big problem, there have been other people that have been looking at the causes of gun violence. So we do know some things. So again, up here are some causes of gun violence. But what I want to point out is that not every cause is up here. And additionally, because we don't have all the supports that we need to research gun violence, there's some important information that we're missing. For example, we don't necessarily know what type of gun violence is associated with a specific cause or whether there's a primary cause in a certain type of act. So what we have is just some basic lower level information on some potential causes of gun violence that have an effect in some way. So one is that we have a culture. We have a culture of sportsmen and hunters who back gun violence. We also have a culture in America of people that just support the Second Amendment right. So they support your right to own guns. We also have an is issue of access. So an 18 year old in the United States cannot walk into a pub and order a Heineken, but he can walk into a gun store and purchase a shotgun or a rifle. We also have an issue of lethality. So over the past several decades, guns have become increasingly more lethal. We have semi-automatic assault rifles, we have laser scopes, we have magazines that can hold 30 rounds of ammunition. So guns have become increasingly lethal over time. And all of these factors that are up here are causes of gun violence. So from a policy perspective then, the most effective way to address gun violence is going to address all of these causes that are listed up here. So before we get to sort of past policies and current policies that have been proposed by our president, what I want to do is just spend a couple minutes talking about the one policy that's at the center of this debate, and that's the Second Amendment. So I'm going to give you a second just to read um, what's up there. It's an abbreviated version of the Second Amendment. What about the price of guns? Mm -hmm. 
as far as I know, somebody working on this uh, in Mexico, gun violence took off because there was a flood of cheap automatic weapons from the US. Mm -hmm. um, and I also be been looking at the price of Kalashnikovs around the world, and you can get them in parts of the developing world for <coughs> not very much. Absolutely. And, and that definitely all plays into access as well, because not only can sort of anyone go in and buy it, but there also are firearms that are relatively affordable as well. And we'll actually talk about um, the price just a little bit later too. So the Second Amendment, um, as you read up there, there's basically a couple different debates going on about the Second Amendment. One is that people sort of debate whether or not this statement, when it was written, referred to an individual's rights to own guns, or a collective rights of states to own guns, so basically state militias. There's also a debate as to whether or not the Second Amendment is even relevant in today's times. <coughs> so when this was written, in order to shoot a firearm, you would have to you know, take your gun, load in the bullet, and pound it down, shoot it, and do it all over again. So you basically could only shoot one bullet at a time before it had to go through the process of reloading. <coughs> now what we have are guns, what we have automatic weapons, semi-automatic weapons, large capacity magazines, we have all of these different features of guns that were not there when this policy was created. The issue, though, is that the Second Amendment is part of the United States identity, and it is in our U.S. Constitution, so it's something that we do have to address. So now we're just going to take a look at some of the past policies that have been enacted to address gun violence. So we have a couple different ones up here, a handgun ban and an assault weapons ban. So back in the early 1900s in New York, there was a handgun ban. And what they saw is that this ban did have some effect on gun violence and that it decreased some of the rates of homicide compared to other big cities. The problem that New York had, though, is that there were other states surrounding New York that didn't have handgun bans. And so 85% of all the guns that were recovered in crimes came from other states outside of New York. So it wasn't completely effective at reducing gun violence. <coughs> Similarly, in Washington, D.C., they also had a handgun ban, which again was somewhat effective at reducing homicide rates. But as we talked about for some of the causes of gun violence, it can be associated with um, drugs. And in the 1970s, Washington, D.C. had a crack cocaine epidemic. And when that epidemic happened, the results that they saw from this handgun ban disappeared. So policies, they sort of worked, they sort of didn't. They had some holes in them. Then in the mid-1990s, what we saw was an assault weapons ban that happened at the national level. And that ban lasted for 10 years. And over 10 years, there was a federally mandated research study that looked at the effects of that assault weapons ban. So this first picture that I have up here, I'm not sure how well you can see it. This is Wayne Lafayette, and he is the CEO of the National Rifle Association, or the major gun lobbying firm in the United States. And he read that report that was put out on the assault weapons ban and concluded that the ban had no effect on reducing crime. But Senator Feinstein, Dan Feinstein here, who's a United States Congresswoman, came to a conclusion that the assault weapons ban, based on this report, had a great effect on reducing crime, both citing the same report. So basically what happened is the authors of that report put out a statement that basically said both of them are wrong. And both of them were wrong because there were several issues with that assault weapons ban. What they saw were some indicators that the ban was working. But in terms of reducing gun violence, assault weapons are only used in about 2% of crimes. The assault weapons <coughs> ban was also not retroactive, so it didn't get rid of the assault weapons in the United States. And there were some other issues with the policy as well. So what we can take from these policies is that there's some indication that they do work. But we also know that we need to enact them properly in order to get them to work as well. But we also have information from a lot of other countries on gun violence and policies that are used to reduce them. So there's a lot of lessons that we can learn, not only from our past policies, but also from policies from other countries. So when we talk next about these proposed policies from President Barack Obama, what I want you to do is just sort of think about all of the contextual information that we've talked about. And if you have any ideas on policies that we'll talk about that you think will work, or ones that you think will won't work, feel free to point them out as we go along. So after the Sandy Hook tragedy, the one that I discussed at the beginning of this presentation, 
President Obama made it his mission to address gun violence. And from that, what he did is he put together a couple different working groups to come up with some policy recommendations. So he has 23 policy recommendations over four priority areas. So we're going to quickly discuss um, those four priority areas and a couple examples of the policies within them as well. So the first priority area for President Obama was to close background check loopholes. So currently about 40% of all gun sales occur privately. So what that means is that you could go to someone you know that has a gun and buy them, buy the gun from them, you wouldn't have to go through a background check. Or you could go to a gun show, which is also not covered under this um, background check requirement. So you could go to a gun show and purchase a firearm there, you wouldn't have to go to um, through the whole background check system. And so basically that means that for some reason you are restricted from owning a firearms, there's a very easy way for you to go and own one. So what the president wants to do is close all of those loopholes and require background checks for all gun sales, no matter what type or where you are. So the second area that the president wants to address is reducing gun violence. What he wants to do is have a national level ban on assault weapons and also high capacity magazines. So the 30 round clips that Adam Lansing used to shoot in Sandy Hook, that would no longer be um, something that you could legally purchase. Another interesting point is that he also wants to prevent and prosecute gun crime. So let's say for example that um, Island, she, Dr. Palomar myself, let's say she is a convicted felon. She just loved those Twinkies so much, she had to go yeah, off and okay. so, <laughs> so what she what she can do is she can go to, what's her name? Got a gun. So she can have you purchase a gun for her. And what would happen if for some reason you guys were caught on your scheme, you would just get a fine for improperly filing paperwork. So when you purchase a gun for someone who's a convicted felon, you basically get a slap on the wrist. There isn't any law on the books that would actually provide a fine or some jail time for doing that. So the one, one thing that the president wants to do is make sure that we have laws on the books that we can end these so-called straw purchases. The other priority area is making schools safer. So the president wants to make sure that there are resource officers and counselors available in every school. And the important point about the resource officers is that they would be carrying a weapon. And so his idea is to make sure that there is someone in the school with a weapon that would be able to prevent or circumvent someone who did come in with a gun. He also wants to make sure that schools have emergency management plans. So schools would actually have to practice, much like you would a fire drill or something like that, practice if, if someone was coming into your school with a I see a little look on your face. What's that for? I don't like that idea. <laughs> Why? Uh, I don't think children, it's the, the probability of it happening is so small in an individual mm -hmm. school to, to encode that level of fear in children is sure. a bit over the top. Sure. So having someone in your school that has a gun, having to practice for a spree shooter, what that could do is sort of change the dynamic of your school. As you pointed out, you could actually be scaring some of these children. So I just want to thank you for, for pointing that out because although these policies are in the right line and in the right direction, they're not perfect though either. So the last priority area is improving mental health services. And what some of these policies are aimed, policies are aimed to do is to provide teachers and um, researchers and other persons who work at schools with training on how to recognize mental health issues so that teachers may be able to um, find these certain characteristics that could be present for someone with a mental health issue and maybe refer them for services. And he also wants to make sure that for persons who have private health insurance, that those policies actually cover mental health services. So I know you already pointed out um, one issue, but what do you think about the president's current proposals to address gun violence? Do you think they'll work? Do you think anything's missing? Well, it's the idea on the last one that uh, these, the disproportionate share of these people like in Connecticut are people with mental health issues. Mm -hmm. That's the idea, so if you can catch them and then 
that's sort of more prevention as opposed to. Mm -hmm. And so one of the issues with that is that this focus on mental health can almost create this misperception and stigma when it comes to mental health. So persons, for example, who have a mental health issue aren't more or less likely to commit an act like this than someone that doesn't. So that could be one issue. Mm -hmm. I'm a little confused. Are we trying to are we are we looking to reduce the number of spree killings or are we trying to reduce the murder rate using gun violence? Mm -hmm. Because oh. I think they're very, very different objectives. And it seems to me that the vast majority of people who get shot in the US are not shot at school, they're shot at home. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not a spree killing. And I guess the other the other question that I wanted to, to raise was has there been any research to suggest that a I think we know the percentage of gun crimes committed by people who would come up with problematic backgrounds if we had done the check. Mm -hmm. Okay, so going back to your first question, which is a very good question. So even with the president's policies, if you read the document and look at it, especially in the front, it talks about that these are policies to address gun violence in general. <coughs> so that would include things such as free killings or killing by a romantic partner or, or another acquaintance. And as you correctly pointed out, when we look at the number of gun-related deaths in the United States, spree killings don't make up the majority of those 30,000 every year. But our policies are sort of geared to address spree or mass shootings. So if the goal is to address gun violence, then we may have to come up with something else. Maybe not necessarily a whole new plan, but add some other policies in there. So going back to the second part, which was, can you remind me again? What percentage of gun crimes committed by people for background problematic? Yes, and it is a significant number. And I do have in some of my um, references, I'd be happy to share that information with you. There are a large number of persons who, I believe it's about 20,000 people that go to purchase a gun that would normally not be able to if we had the complete universal background check system. That's a lot of firearms, 20,000, for people that shouldn't have them. So again, we that, have to that's make... Not, that's not addressing the question that I'm asking, which is what proportion of gun crime is created by people with dodgy backgrounds. Oh, so so, so lots, of, lots of people with dodgy backgrounds, they find other ways of getting guns. Mm -hmm. But the crucial question is, how many people who shoot people are people who would have been prevented from having the gun sure. if they the background? Sure, and if we had the millions of dollars in government-funded research, we may know the exact answer to that question. So people, some people have looked at that, and basically without having all of the information that you would need to um, look at that question, so having all the information on people's backgrounds, because that's not all available in the background check system currently. So each state right now varies on the information they provide into a background check. Some might include um, things like past criminal activity, some might not. Some might have information on mental health status, some might not. So if we had a system that had all that information, we'd be able to answer it definitively. But I think for now, what we could say is that there's definitely some. But there hasn't been any sort of numbers on, on how many we would actually prevent from having all that information. So, but that's another good question, another good area that we would need to address to make sure that we can get all that information. Any other comments on what you think about the president's proposal? Well, again, I guess to answer that final question, what's missing for our proposals, I would mm -hmm. say research and evidence is what mm -hmm. Absolutely. It really is. Well, it seems to be based on <coughs> the assumption that the problem is intensifying, <coughs> where the evidence is that lethal violence with firearms, particularly homicidal violence, is not dramatically over the past 20 years. Absolutely. The spree killings are steady. Overall homicides have dropped by whatever it is, 40%. Correct. Mm -hmm. And that's despite the increased access, the increased vitality of weapons and so on. <coughs> so what's going on there? Mm -hmm. And another great uh, question that would link back to actually having the funds and opportunity available to do some research on that. So there's quite a bit that's missing just from these policies here. And some of it may be effective, some of it may not. Only time will tell. And if we look at the examples from the National Assault Weapons Ban, what we see is that in order to examine these policies for how effective they are, not only do the policies have to be enacted, but they have to be enacted properly to address the actual issue, and they have to be enacted long enough so that we can see if they actually have an effect. And there's some other um, newer developments, too, that have come up that are not addressing these policies. So we were having some technical
And one particular group in the United States has actually taken 3D printers to use in the manufacturing of firearms. So there's a specific component of, let's, we'll use an assault weapon, for example, basically like the middle piece of it. And if I had any artistic ability, I would draw this for you, but I do not. So it's called the lower receiver. And it's the only part of the assault weapon that's actually regulated. So you can't just go anywhere, any person, and buy it, because there are restrictions on the lower receiver. But what you can do is you can take a 3D printer, basically put in um, some blueprints or planes into the 3D printer, and you can download them easily from the internet, and basically have your 3D printer print this lower receiver. Then what you could do is go out and buy all the unregulated, basically, accessories for this 3D printer, fashion them all together, and you have yourself a homemade assault weapon. And on this video, what you would see is you would see someone actually go to the shooting range with their 3D printed gun and shoot off six rounds of ammunition from the gun. Now, after six rounds, the assault weapon did break and fall apart. But the author of the video sort of points out that, well, right now this gun may be a crappy gun. It's only a matter of time before this gets better. And a subsequent video that was put out based on this 3D printer showed the same person's manufacture a different lower receiver from their 3D printer, and they went to a shooting range and shot off 600 rounds of ammunition. And the persons that were shooting that gun pointed out that the only reason they didn't shoot more bullets is because they ran out. So clearly, policies, again, right now, aren't designed to address 3D printers and whether or not people should be able to go and manufacture them on their own. So something in the future that policies are going to have to address are the issues of manufacturing guns with 3D printers. More generally, it's a point about dealing with future technology. Mm -hmm. Future Absolutely. technology. Absolutely. Generally speaking. Mm -hmm. Because it, it, perhaps they would be able to print and fashion other parts of the gun as well, more than just the lower receiver. So another development also is lawsuits. And there was also a video clip from lawsuits. And basically on that video clip, what you would see is a discussion by a political analyst talking about gun manufacturers. And this, again, this is the first time you sort of talked about gun manufacturers since the beginning of the presentation. And basically what he points out is that there were some, these were several years ago, some <coughs> lawsuits at the state level where persons were suing gun manufacturers. And what happened as a result of those lawsuits is that the gun lobbyists went to those state legislators and got them to give them exemptions from lawsuits. But the biggest prize for the gun manufacturers came under the first term of President George W. Bush, in which he signed a national level exemption from all lawsuits for gun manufacturers. You can't sue them for um, liability, consumer protection. They have everything covered in terms of manufacturers. You can sue a BB gun manufacturer, but you cannot sue Smith & Wesson for manufacturing any, any issues with their and so, um, from those lawsuits, what some economists have looked at are what the effects if, of lawsuits would be if you were able to sue the gun manufacturers. And so what they discuss in this paper is that there are some different ways where the cost could be placed on manufacturers or also gun owners, rather than on individuals or on communities. So some of the effects up here, so for manufacturers, before when we talked about the price of guns, if we had lawsuits, then guns that are produced, may, those prices of those guns may change to reflect their actual societal impact. So rather than having a semi-automatic weapon that costs a couple hundred dollars, maybe it would cost a couple thousand dollars, maybe more. What we may see is prices that change based on lawsuits for guns that are used to commit violent acts or commit violent crimes. Additionally, the cost of guns could also be placed on owners. And this could be done in terms of insurance, um, so for someone that owns, let's say, an AK-57, they may have to pay a very high insurance premium for owning that gun, which may sort of persuade people not to purchase or own those guns. So we could see multiple effects if we had lawsuits and then could place some of these costs of owning guns back on the manufacturers or back on the owners as well, rather than having them on the individuals or also on um, communities in terms of taxes and things like that. So when we talk about policies and things that are done at the congressional level, so our senators and lawmakers who are making these issues, often 
oftentimes what we have to do in terms of getting policies enacted is be very strategic. So policymakers, if you're able to meet with them, you may only have a couple of minutes. You may not have a lot of time to sort of say all of these things that we've talked about for the past 40 minutes. So if I were able to meet with a legislator and had 10 minutes of their time, I would tell them two things. I would tell them that to address gun violence, a potentially successful way to do so would be to model a public health approach and to do that at the national level. So we'll talk about why I think this way in terms of looking at what we've done in the past for smoking and car safety in the United States by using the public health model. So basically, just in general, the public health model aims to impact as many people as possible. And the public health model, what it does is, there's sort of four simplistic steps to it. Is defining the problem, you're going to identify risk and protective factors of the issue, you sort of test intervention strategies, and you'll make sure that there's widespread adaption. And in the United States, what we saw in terms of smoking from the 1960s until about 2010 is that there was a reduction in smoking rates from 43% to 19% by using this public health model. And we saw some similar changes in terms of car safety, so car fatalities and other issues when a public health model was used. So what I'd like to do next is present a couple slides showing how we can use smoking car safety public health models to apply that to addressing gun violence. So one issue up here that we sort of talked about already with tobacco was taxation. So what, the, um, what we did in the United States was to increase taxes on cigarettes significantly. And not only would that, did that help sort of prevent people from buying them, but it also provided funding for some much needed programs. So smoking prevention programs were funded based on increased taxes on cigarettes. And there are also um, other ways here that we'll talk about in a second, but from looking at car safety, there are a number of different ways, again, that we can sort of increase the public health approach to addressing gun violence. So with gun safety, what we could do is we could have safety standards in terms of accessories that are used for guns. We could inspect guns to make sure that they are working properly. We could make sure that people are prepared to own a gun. So this could be through taking a class before you purchase one. Maybe you'd have to pass a test as well to make sure that you are competent enough to handle a gun. We could have age requirements. And we could also have um, regulations in terms of how to store your guns, where you'd have to purchase them. And we could also make sure that we have the funds available to be able to do some of these higher level campaigns in terms of making sure that people really understand guns and gun violence. So you can see that the public health model could be a good approach for addressing gun violence in a number of different ways at a number of different levels. So the second thing that I mentioned that I would do if I could talk to legislators is make sure that policies were created at the national level. And what I want to do is use gun trafficking as an example to sort of show you why. So with gun trafficking, there is this thing called gun exports, gun crime exports. And what that means is that for a gun crime, a gun can be purchased in one state, brought over to another state, and then used to commit a crime. What we see in terms of the number of crime gun exports is that there are 10 states that are responsible for about 57% of all crime gun exports. And we see similar relationships to other areas. So with background checks, so for states that require background checks, they export crime guns at about six per 100,000 people. For states that do not require background checks, they export guns at a rate of about 13 per 100,000 people. So even though it's great that states on their own can make way towards addressing gun violence, if the state next to you doesn't, you could be negatively impacted still, no matter what you do. So I just want to show a couple graphs to, to give you that visual component of this. So what we see is that West Virginia is a crime gun source for five major states. So these states are all affected by the lax gun laws that West Virginia has. And this is not necessarily just characteristic of West Virginia. We see this across the United States. In Mississippi, we see that they are a crime export source and also Nevada out in the West as well. So as you can see, there's clearly a good reason for us to address gun violence through a public health model and also making sure that those policies are created at the national level. 
And again, although it's great that some states have made progress towards addressing this issue, there's clearly a lot more work to do because we haven't seen anything done at the national level yet. So just a couple of updates on what some states have done. So Connecticut, for example, took a long time having both parties, Democratic and Republican, working on policies to address gun violence. And what they passed recently was an assault weapons ban. It includes over 100 different types of weapons. They also passed a ban on large capacity magazines. And they also required the state to develop a gun registry. So basically, it's a registry of all persons who commit gun-related crimes. So that if someone in the state of Connecticut tried to go and purchase a crime, their name could potentially come up in this registry as someone who's restricted from owning a firearm. But at the same time, we've also seen some sort of regression away from addressing gun violence. So for example, in Arkansas, a bill that they recently passed allowed guns to be brought to places of worship and to schools, particularly on college campuses. So what happened if you touched it? I used to live there. <laughs> I have, I have all the, okay, most of these um, regressions up here aren't necessarily policies that are going to have a big impact, but what it does is it's representative of our culture. And so what it says is that we're not exactly ready, or everyone is not exactly ready to address gun violence. And I can give you that specific information on Kentucky after. You can't bring a gun on the campus Kentucky. Well, that may have changed. Because yeah. a lot of them have started passing. Well, I mean, Texas was talking about allowing mm -hmm. guns on campus. That was a huge leap there. Yeah, and as someone who's been both an instructor and a student, I would be extremely uncomfortable wondering if my professor or fellow students had a gun on them if I was taking a class. So clearly, there, it's great that we have some progress, but for especially for, for neighboring states, regardless of what you do, you could still be impacted by another state's lax gun law. So again, there are a lot of different people and organizations that are working towards addressing this issue. And one of the agencies that I work with, organizations, is a Society for Community Research and Action. They, um, what we have done recently is to put out a policy statement on recommendations for legislators to enact changes at the policy level. We have also done some presentations and trainings on doing policy work. And we're also partnering with other organizations to address this issue. So we're currently working with the American Psychological Association to put out action alerts, so calls to action for people to contact their legislators to address gun violence. And we're also working with a task force to provide them with information to work on addressing this issue at the policy level. So we're making recommendations to this task force to then be used by legislators to hopefully enact some policy changes. Because as I said, we haven't had anything happen at the national level yet. And given everything that we've talked about, it's clearly important for us to address this issue. Does anyone have any questions? Mm -hmm.